Christmas Sunday is December 20th. On that day, we will take up our Christ's birthday offering. This is a special opportunity for us to give towards missions work during this Christmas season, and our goal is $1,200. As we prepare our hearts for Christmas, we want to share with you some thoughts on Christ today. Who is Christ, and what does he mean to us, especially at Christmas? He is the reason for Christmas. He is in all and through all, through all of Christmas. He is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. This baby in a manger, he is our wonderful counselor, our king of kings. He is the word made flesh that came to dwell among us. Matthew 2, 1 through 13 says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among those among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Let's pray. Blessed God, who gives all good and perfect gifts, We thank you for the greatest gift of all, the gift of your Son, Jesus. Thank you for sending him to live among us, so that through him your light is revealed. We see every day how darkness covers the earth, even touching those we love. Help us to be radiant in Christ, so that when others interact with us, they will know you. In the name of the precious Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, we are wrapping up the series, Me and God, that we've been working on for quite a while. We may revisit this one sometime because uh, it's just, there's a lot more metaphors than what we had time to cover uh, in this one. But basically what we've been doing for the last several months, uh, not weeks, it seems like months probably, uh, is we've been taking kind of one metaphor at a time, things that God has said about himself and about us. Uh, You know, one of the most primal questions that we have when it comes to me and God is this question of who is God 
And what does he have to do with me? People have been asking that question or questions like it from the dawn of humanity, right? And people have been wondering, you know, is there God? If there is, what is he like? What does he have to do with me? And the God of the universe that created all this understands that we have these questions. And so throughout his word, he's given us example after example of here's what it's like. Here's what it's like. Here's what I'm like. Here's what our relationship is like. And he paints these word pictures for us that describe each one in some part what it's like. Some of them describe it more thoroughly than others. Some just describe an aspect of it. So we've looked at different things like the, the potter and the clay, that we are like clay in, in, in the potter's hands. And it's a, it's a humbling metaphor. We've looked at the, the branches and the vine and how we have to stay connected to the vine if we're to bear fruit. We've looked at the bride and the groom, the sheep and the shepherd, and so forth. And last week we looked at the patient and the doctor, that Jesus came not for the healthy but for the sick to heal and fix that which was broken, to call sinners to repentance. And so that was the, the latest one we looked at. And there's a whole host of others that are out there that are worth looking at and spending time on. So don't be surprised if you see this series come around again one of these days. But for today, we wrap things up and kind of segue into Christmas. As the next couple of weeks, we'll look at a, a continuation of last year's Christmas series called First Christmas, where we look at characters and people from the Christmas narrative that talk, you know, um, last year I think we looked at Mary and at Joseph and different ones and what we can learn from their life story and this year we'll look at some new ones but as we wrap up this series today we talk about being that me and God are like a citizen and king that, and we've talked at length about this before we did a whole series that you can go back and, and hear online or on our podcast about the king and his kingdom and in a sense, this is the one metaphor that we're looking at that's, that's kind of more than a metaphor. You know, often God says, well, it's, it's like this or it's like that. But Jesus came as a king, declaring a kingdom. And so if there's one of these metaphors that is, that is the most real, that is more than a metaphor, more than just a symbol or a likeness, it's this one. And we believe that Jesus was and is a king. The king. And those of us who claim him as king, who worship him as king, he is our king. And we are citizens of his kingdom, first and foremost. And the kingdoms of this world take a back seat. We may be Americans, but we are first citizens of Christ's kingdom. And it's important that we remember that. And so that's the metaphor, if you will, that we're diving in today, into today. But keep in mind, it's more than a metaphor. See, a long time ago, about 2,000 years ago near, in a little town, Bethlehem, an angel came and spoke to a humble girl of... Humble beginnings, no, no wealth, no, nothing really to speak of. Nothing that would have set her apart to the average human eye. But the angel said to her, 
Mary, do not be afraid. You've found favor with God. And you will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, this angel comes and brings news to Mary. But the only part of this that was news to Mary or to any other Jew of her day was that the angel was talking to her and that the time was now. The rest of this was what they were expecting. They had been expecting for hundreds of years the promised Messiah to come, to be born, for God to reign again, for Him to set things right, to reign over His people. And the king had come. And what was news was that Mary would give birth to this king and that it would happen now. The long-awaited Messiah had come. Now, we read a passage a moment ago that gave us an account of some wise men, some magi. There's different terms that have been used for these guys. But we're told that after he was born, after Jesus was actually born, then it was during the time of King Herod, and magi came from the east, and they came to Jerusalem and they asked around Jerusalem, which was like the capital city. You know, that's where uh, Herod would have been and so forth. Then they asked, where is he? You know, we've seen this king's star proclaiming his birth. We've been watching the stars and, and we've seen uh, this sign of his birth. So where is he? And Herod, and along with everyone else in Jerusalem, was disturbed, we're told. Distressed. And they went to searching and they found that uh, this king was to be born in Bethlehem and, and they informed the wise men. And after the wise men had come and gone and worshipped Jesus as king, an angel appeared to Joseph now, or the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt for Herod is going to search for him and try to kill him. Now, Herod, who is he? Herod was the king of the Jews, in a sense. But mostly just in title. He had been set up by Rome. You know, Rome had taken over Israel. And it was a region where they had trouble. You know, people, the Jewish people were a proud people with a proud history that didn't take kindly to being taken over again. And so things were not going smoothly and, and they set up this king you know kind of as a okay you, you can have your own king right? You can he'll, he'll rule you and so forth but he was just a pawn of Rome right? And there was a governor placed there to remind him of that. You know men like Pontius Pilate. And the people the devout Jews didn't even care for Herod because Herod was corrupt and evil. In fact, Herod kind of represented everything wrong with monarchies, right? When you look at, at monarchies that are run by humans, you find trouble most of the time. And this was definitely no exception. 
I mean, all the stuff you, I mean, read, if, you, if you're brave, read the stories, you know, but stories of incest, stories of great paranoia. Uh, I mean, Herod killed his own children because he was worried they were going to try to take his throne before he died, you know. And, and so this is a guy that was, uh, represented everything wrong with monarchies, right? And he was a paranoid king. He was, he was clinging to this title of king of the Jews, And here comes these men declaring that another king of the Jews had been born. And you think the guy that is willing to kill his own children is going to take kindly to that notion that someone else was born to take his throne? No. Now what did Herod have right and wrong? You know, because he was right in a way and he was wrong in a way. And I would say that Herod was right in that a king had been born. He was right to assume that. But where he was wrong was that this was an entirely different animal. This kingdom was not like the kingdoms he was used to. This new king's kingdom was not like those of this world. Herod was out of his league. Jesus was not born to take Herod's throne, but to take the throne that was over every other throne, including Rome, who was over Herod. Herod was out of his league. So he was right, but he was very wrong. Fast forward then a while. And this man that keeps cropping up in every gospel account we have, the prophet that paved the way for Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist shows up. And he starts preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And he baptizes Jesus and declares, this is the one I've been telling you about. It's coming. Then Jesus begins his ministry. And what are we told? That he goes and begins to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The king had indeed been born. And now was making his public appearance on the scene. One of the most interesting passages in scripture comes. As the kind of near the climax of the gospels. Where Jesus is betrayed. He's turned over to the Romans and the Jews. And they're trying to sort out what to do with him. And the Jews are conspiring to have him killed. Specifically to have him crucified, which was the worst kind of death. They wanted him humiliated, not just dead. And we see this scene where Jesus stands before Pilate. It's quite a scene. Pilate stands before these Jewish leaders and he's trying to sort all this out. Here we go again, he's thinking. These Jews are always causing trouble. This is the worst post ever. Why did I get sent here to this awful region? And here they are clamoring for this guy's head. And I don't even understand what is going on here. Why they want this guy dead. He doesn't, maybe he's crazy, but he doesn't seem to have done anything in particular wrong. And he's just trying to fit the pieces together at this point. And Pilate comes back in to the palace, we're told. 
And he summons Jesus. And they have this interview. Pilate and Jesus. I'll read to you a little bit of it. Taken from the book of John. Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus asks, Is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replies. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Ah, you are a king then, says Pilate. And Jesus answers, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth? retorts Pilate. Which is almost certainly a statement designed to cut the conversation off. What is truth? A rhetorical question. A scoffing question. Here's this Jesus and just another one of these Jews that claims to have the truth. They all claim to have the truth and Rome claims to have the truth and everyone has the claim to have the truth. What is truth? Pilate asks. And the question is echoed down through the ages and is certainly echoed in our culture today. What is truth? Can there really be one truth? Is it possible that you can possess the truth and the rest of us do not? Perhaps Pilate considered power to be the only kind of truth because ultimately that's what would determine Jesus' fate on this night. It was a power struggle between Rome and these Jewish leaders. What is truth? Pilate asks to the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Hmm. Interesting. What's also interesting is the word truth that's used here. See, Jesus, you know, while perhaps he was subtly reminding Pilate of his role as judge in this matter to get to the bottom of the truth, and Pilate probably didn't like that, and maybe that's why he cut him off, scoffing what is truth. But the word truth here, in the Greek, you know, it, there's different words that can be used here that's translated truth. And the one perhaps most common for what we think of as truth is veritas. And it's where we get words like verified. Or if you're into Harry Potter, veritas serum, which was like a truth potion, you know, in that fictional novel. But... <clears throat> Veritas is like a factual representation of events. That's what we usually think of when we think of truth. Tell me the truth. You know, you tell your kid, tell me the truth. <laughs> tell me what really happened. But there's another kind of truth. And Jesus uses not veritas, but 
aletheia, which means like a, a correct perspective on reality. An accurate perspective on reality. You know, like, you can have a false sense of reality and a correct sense of reality. And Jesus says that the reason he came into the world was to testify to this reality, this correct reality. And everyone on the side of reality listens to him. Pilate says, what is truth? Here's the deal. And these are your first blanks today if you're filling them out. The kingdom Jesus came to bring was never about religion. It was about reality. See, Pilate thought, here's just another religious guy claiming to have the truth. But Jesus was claiming so much more. He was claiming more than just, hey, you know, this is a religion, this is what I believe. He was claiming reality. That there really is a God. That Jesus was the representation of God on this planet, the Son of God, the coming King, that He was, in fact, reality. A few moments later in this exchange with Pilate, Pilate comes back to him again and he says to Jesus, why don't you defend yourself? Don't you realize I have the power to have you killed or to save your life? And Jesus says, you've got no power over me except what was given to you by my Father, by heaven, by me and my dad, basically. He says that. That's a bold statement to the, the physical representation of Rome, the greatest, one of the greatest empires the world has ever known. And Jesus says, Rome's got no power except what we allow you to have. This is not about a religion. A religion doesn't make those kinds of claims. This is about a reality that Jesus was proclaiming that there is a God that he has come to set up a real kingdom, a different kingdom. Jesus said it's not from this world, it's not like the kingdoms of this world, it's a different sort of kingdom. But make no mistake, it is a kingdom and it is real. And God is real. And he does have authority over this world. And the people who are on the side of reality listen to me. They follow me, Jesus says. And so here's the second part that we learn when we look at this metaphor that's more than a metaphor. Citizens of the kingdom order their life according to reality. This is more than a religion. This is more than a religious practice. We don't just go to church and recite prayers and sing songs because we're religious people. We do all this because we're worshiping a real king. 
And we believe that he's really reigning. And that he's really going to return and set up his kingdom. And we really want to be a part of it. We believe in a different reality than what much of the world believes in. And much of the world is still saying, as Pilate said long ago, what is truth? You claim to have truth. They claim to have truth. They say worship this. You say worship that. They say this is how it works. And you say this is how it works. How can we really know what is truth? But if you believe that there is a reality and that Jesus' version of reality is true, then it should change your life. A citizen of the kingdom orders their life according to reality. In other words, it has to change your life. Like if you really believe that there's a different reality than what the most of the, this world believes is reality, then accordingly your life should be ordered in a different fashion than the lives of the people of this world that don't believe in that same reality. I was thinking about this with uh, regard to some of the movies that we see from time to time. Maybe you've seen the movie... The Truman Show. Uh, if you've seen it, you know it's about this. It's obviously fictional and far-fetched. Not as far-fetched as the next movie I'll mention. But this guy was born and like an orphan. And, and so he was adopted by basically like a TV network producer guy. And he decides to make this kid's life into a reality TV show from the day he was born. And puts him in this dome and all of this kid's life he believes that he's living in the real world but really he's just, his whole life is on camera and the whole world is watching his life unfold and there's a whole reality outside of his dome that he doesn't know about and he grows up and he goes to work every day at the same office and he starts to get some suspicious of some things and tries to leave town and can't leave town and keeps getting his way blocked and he starts getting more and more suspicious finally is able to break out and realizes there's this whole world out there that he was never told about. And just think about, you know, imagine in that far-fetched story, you know, if, if Truman had known about that whole world out there, how his life might have been different, what choices he might have made differently if he had known the real reality. Or there's a, like I say, even further-fetched movie, The Matrix, in which... There's a, you know, I won't even go into the details. But it, for those of you who have seen it, this is another one where uh, this main character, Neo, is broken out of a false reality and into a shockingly different reality. His life was never the same. At one point, he's given a choice. You know, you can take this red pill, I believe it was, and go on, or maybe it was a blue pill, and go on believing what you've always believed about reality and go on with the wool over your eyes, or you can take this other pill and find out about the real reality and we'll break you out of this false reality. It's a science fiction movie. You don't bother if you haven't bothered yet. But very interesting when it comes to this topic of that you know the whole premise is that there's this whole world of people that are living in a false reality. And if they only knew what was really going on, it would completely change their lives. 
But in the real world, people often live in a false reality as well. I was thinking of, uh, you know, lately you, you hear about these banks that are too big to fail, right? And they lived in this reality for a while that they could make loans to people who couldn't afford to pay them on houses and that it would all work out okay in the end, that they would somehow make money on this. And they lived in that reality and then one day reality hit home, didn't it? And the economy wasn't doing so good and then our, our government that often doesn't live in reality decided to bail them out because they're too big to fail, right? And so they bailed them out and, and so forth and then we have all that mess. But they found out and they had to rework legislation and they had to rework the way these banks did business and now it's a lot harder to get a loan than it was a few years back because they learned the reality that if you can't pay for it, you can't pay for it. <laughs> All right? That was the reality they learned. Our nation, you know, like I say, oftentimes still lives in a false sense of reality. Perhaps one of those is the national debt that keeps doing that. How long can it go like that? We're going to find out, I guess, <laughs> because in our nation, we don't believe that it's a real problem. I mean, some of us might. But if we really believed that just a constantly escalating debt problem was a huge problem, then the presidential candidates would probably be talking about it more than they are. But they seem concerned about everything else under the sun, except that, seems to me. If the people of this nation were really concerned about it, that would be the topic of conversation. But one day, reality will probably catch up in some way, shape, or form, won't it? Because that's the way it works. You can't just keep going into more and more debt and letting your interests become a bigger and bigger part of your budget and never have consequences from that. That's just not living in reality. So it's not just matters of faith in which people sometimes live with a false sense of reality. But it applies in our faith as well certainly goes for matters of faith. See, I can decide that Pilate was right and Jesus was wrong. And there is no real truth. I mean, you have your truth, I have my truth, we all have our truth. And that's the world that we live in today. I mean, they believe this and they believe that and it's all really the same thing, right? That's what we're told. And if Pilate and much of this world is right and there is no real truth or reality, then I'm free to order my life according to my reality. Right? And that's what we do. We invent our own realities. We decide what we're going to worship and what we're not going to worship. How we're going to order our life and how we're not going to order our lives. We decide what's wrong and what's right. And it changes with each season and each generation. As the next generation comes up and says, no, we believe this is right now. You used to think it was wrong, but now it's right. And they rewrite the laws and they rewrite all of that. And they make it up as they go. And I'll do what I want to do. And I'll order my life how I want to order it. And at the end of my life, I'll be measured by my successes and by my failures. I'll be measured by how many friends I have or don't have. 
I'll be measured on what my family has to say about me. Was I good at something? Did I devote myself to a hobby or to some kind of charity? And they'll measure my life based on that. But what if that's not reality? And what if Jesus was right and Pilate was wrong? What if Jesus is right about what reality is and and this world is wrong? What if there really is a God? One who created all of this and has authority over it? What if His word is what matters? What if His law is what is a constant? What if He really is working everything to be put back together again? If Jesus is right and that is reality, then I wouldn't be so worried about what I want. I'd be more worried about what He wants. I wouldn't be so worried about where I was going to go or what I was going to do, but what He would want me to do. How He would want me to live my life. My whole reality would be devoted to Him because He is reality. And He is real. He would be the only one worthy of such devotion if that is truly reality. And at the end of my life, I wouldn't care much about what they said about me and my successes and my failures and how much wealth I accumulated or how much fun I had or how many friends I made or how many you know or what my family even thought of me what would matter to me is what I would hear when I stood before God and whether or not he would say to me well done good and faithful servant if that's reality and there is a God if Jesus version of reality is the real reality then I would order my life in a different way. So what are we going to do with this? We can, you know, wring our hands about, well, is Jesus' reality the real reality? I mean, I just don't know for sure. I mean, even those of us who are the most faithful, we have our doubts sometimes that creep in. And we wonder, is all this really real? We have our moments. I mean, we even have letters from people like Mother Teresa that say, you know, she had her moments. It's okay to have moments of doubts. That's part of faith. Right? You're having faith in something that your eyes can't see yet. And there's times that you're going to wrestle with that. There's seasons where you're going to wrestle with that. And so we can wring our hands and we can say, oh, is this really the reality? Well, I believe that there's part of each of us that already knows the answer to that. Deep down in us, part of us that was put there by God that, and we know in our spirit what's true. But even if that's not the case, just consider your two alternatives. In this world, you can, you can choose to think like Pilate and like this world thinks and say, well, what is truth? Truth is relative. I'll make my own truth. And so you can go through this life and you can make your own reality as so many people do. And you may or may not find a lot of enjoyment in this life. 
Some people who do that do. Some people who do that seem pretty miserable. But uh, what you have to look forward to at the end is probably just a grave. Unless you also want to make up a reality about, you know, good people going with the, you know, all dogs go to heaven theory, you know. And you, you can make up your own reality of that as well and, and believe what you want about that. But on the other hand, if you choose to live according to the reality that Jesus proclaimed, then you're going to spend your whole life living for him and for other people. And it's not always going to be pleasant. It won't. But in the end, you'll find remarkable joy and peace that can't be found in living your life for yourself. And, when it's all over, you will have stored up the kind of wealth that you can take with you. Instead of the kind that you can't take with you. And you'll have the hope of living in a world that functions in the way that God intended it to function from the beginning. Maybe all that sounds too good to be true. Very well. Go on and, and live your life for now and take what you get later. But as for me, in my house, we're going to cling to the hope that Jesus' reality is the real reality. And we're going to live our lives for Him. Because, first of all, I find it fulfilling to live my life for something more than myself. And second of all, I like having a hope instead of just a grave to look forward to. And this is my hope. That there is a God who loves me. Even though I'm a selfish mess sometimes. And there's a lot of work yet to be done on me. But I believe that he loves me enough that he sent his son. And that son grew up and, and took my death. And he rose from the dead. Hundreds of people saw it. Their accounts have been recorded for us. Now Jesus is alive and reigning in reality. And one glorious day that reality is going to be made very clear and evident to everybody. And he'll set things right. And when he does, look for me on the side of truth. And I hope I can look for you on the side of truth. On the side of reality. Because I believe that some 2,000 years ago, reality literally opened its eyes and blinked and looked out on a world that was in denial about what reality really is and still is in denial. I believe that 2,000 years ago, reality looked out on a world that believed they could worship whatever they wanted, however they wanted. That they could make up their own God, make up their own truth about God, make up how they wanted to worship God, and make up their own ideas of what God is and is about and what He says. That they could, in fact, make God in their own image. But even 
in that utterly deceived world of 2,000 years ago when reality opened his eyes, there were those, as Jesus described him, on the side of truth. And there were men like those three magi that traveled long distances to bow down and worship a king. To give kingly gifts and to say that they recognized reality. And, and this Christmas you'll get a greeting card, no doubt, that says something like, Wise men still seek him. And they're correct. We're going to pray and we're going to sing a song. It's a famous song. We hear it time and again every Christmas. Oh, holy night. We're going to sing a verse that doesn't get sung as often, but it talks about this King of Kings. And I want you to notice as we sing it, don't just hear this Christmas song you've heard a hundred times, but examine the words as we sing them because they're about a king and they're about his kingdom. They're about reality. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. That's powerful. For the first time, it was like reality dawned and we realized our worth because of this king that was born for us. It says things like, fall on your knees because that's what you do before a king. It talks about his law. This king's law is love and his gospel is peace. So as we sing it, sing it as a citizen of the kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for not leaving us blind to reality, but instead revealing it to us. God, we all are born with this tendency to dream up our own version of reality that puts ourselves at the center more often than not. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to order our lives according to your reality. We pray it in Jesus' name, the King. Amen.